The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, welcome. My name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage. We're so glad that you're joining us this morning. We've been in this uh, series since November in the book of Hebrews, and, and we're going to be journeying through Hebrews for quite some time. It'll take us through the spring, and, and as we teach through the book, and we're, we're, we're able to kind of just hear from God as we, as we unpack this book together week in and week out. And today we're going to be in chapter 4 of Hebrews. I encourage you to turn there if you brought a Bible. We're calling the series Greater, Truer, and Better. That's kind of the thesis of the book, the author again and again and again in various ways. Is, is presenting an image of Christ where he is, he is perfectly sufficient and perfect in all his ways and he is truer, greater, and better than, than anything else that we could imagine. And that's his argument. Last week, if you were here, we, we taught through uh, chapter 14, verses 1, all the way through verse 13. And we spent just a few moments in verses 12 and 13. And we mentioned that we we're going to double-click on those two verses today. We're going to come back to Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 today. If you heard last week, just the, 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 the banner that we put over those two verses was that God is saying, hear my word and hear my warning. It's an invitation to, to rest in Christ. So, so there's this, this unique text at the end of this warning that calls us to, to heed God's spoken word, God's written word, God's word to us, and it comes at the tail end of a long warning. So let's read. These two verses, these are the final two verses of of 26 verses of warning. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. It's a very well-known passage. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We will unpack this text together, but most basically, if you consider what is being said in these two verses, God is saying to this original audience that received these words, the Hebrews, these Jewish Christians, he's saying to them, I have spoken. I have revealed myself to you that you won't miss out on my promised rest. He's saying, listen to my words. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the big idea today that we'll come back to again and again is simply that. It's, it's, It's miraculous if you just pause and consider it. That creator God, omniscient, omnipresent God, He has spoken to to his creation. Creator God has made himself known to his creation. It's an incredible thing. So our big idea is simply this. God has spoken. And to borrow some words from my sister Kathy, God has spoken. Treasure this word and let it transform your life. Let's pray. Father, as we we take a look at this well-known passage, God, I just ask that you would give us eyes to see it afresh. God, I know sometimes my temptation when I come to a text that I have studied and read and heard teachings on, it's it's easy for me sometimes, Lord, to just sort of check out. But God, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes this morning, fresh ears to hear what it is you have for us as we study Hebrews 4, 
verses 12 and 13. God, help us have a, a greater understanding and reverence for this amazing truth that you have spoken. Meet us in this place. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was really conflicted on how to start today. I wasn't sure how to begin this sermon. And honestly, I came up here today uh, not fully sure how I was supposed to introduce this text. There was this video that I was shown a couple of weeks ago that was just a video, like a YouTube video, about this, this miracle that God has revealed himself to us. And I was thinking about that. Let me just run you through the thesis of that video really quick. There is this video, and it simply asks this question. If, if there is a God, and if he can do anything, why doesn't he just show himself? Have you ever asked that question or heard someone ask that question? If there is a God and he can do anything, why doesn't he just show himself? And that begs the question, you can begin to think, okay, if, if I were God and, and I wanted to reveal myself to those men and women whom I had created, what would be the best way for me to reveal myself? If I were the one making the decisions, how, how would I reveal myself to my creation? Uh, well, you, you could, the author of this video had, there's five things you could do. Number one, you could, you could pull back the curtain and you could reveal yourself for who you really are. Can you imagine if all of a sudden the veil was peeled back and we saw God for the wholeness of who he was, so much bigger, so much other than us? It would terrify us. We'd die. You, you could cause all kinds of cosmic signs and wonders in the heavens to reveal that you are God, but, but like the video said, that we're a fickle people, and after the 30th sign and wonder, maybe we would just be like, okay, can you just make the sun come back on? I'm trying to get to work. Please, God. Or maybe the third, the third way that maybe God might choose to reveal himself would, would be to come up with a way to reveal himself to every single person, sort of knock on everybody's heart and introduce himself, sort of like a door-to-door -door salesman. But, but when and how and what would that look like? A fourth way God may choose to make himself known to, to humankind would be to just show up in our lives, physically, spiritually, a voice in our heads, just sort of bend our will to, to know him, bend our minds to, to, to turn to him, no free will at all, make us a bunch of robots. Or, or the fifth option is he, he could just become one of us. He, he could cross over into the space and time of his creation. He could enter into their history, indatable history. He could take on all those little things that make his creation human, joy and sweat and pain and heartache and laughter and temptation and blood. So if you were a creator and you wanted to make yourself known to have relationship with those whom you created, what, what path would you choose? Would you, would you pull back the curtain and blow people away by your godness? Would you, would you create ongoing cosmic signs and wonders continually that people might know you're God? Would you, would you just show up in everyone's life like a door-to-door -door salesman? Perhaps you would just alter people's mind and will and you would force relationship or, or you could become one of them. What, what do you think would be the best way? You could, if you became one of them, you could become anyone you wanted. You could be a king. You could become a powerful political leader. You could become a CEO, a superhuman. You could become someone lowly who was born in a manger. That's one way. But you know, if you showed up and you just started telling people you were God, the video unpacks this. It was so good. If you, if you just tell somebody you were God, like, are they going to believe you? So what, what could you do to, to prepare people that they might know that you're God? Well, you, you, you could pre-announce your coming. You could speak through prophets over the course of a thousand years that would foretell of your coming in a bunch of different ways through a bunch of different prophets from all different walks of life. And then when you came, you, you'd be the only human being ever pre-announced, but then people still would struggle to believe. You couldn't just say you're God, so then what would you do? Well, you, 
how about signs and wonders? Maybe miracles to reveal that you are, in fact, God in the flesh. You could do that. What a miracle to think about it. There's a passage in Luke 6, 19 that says, The whole multitude sought to touch Jesus, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. And I know sometimes when we hear these stories of Jesus, you know, hey, he lived 2,000 years ago. That was forever ago. What about today? And the, the, the author of the video asks this question as well. Do you think God is bound by space and time? Do you think your mind and soul are bound by space and time? The, the, those who questioned Jesus in his final days said to him, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus answered them, he who has seen me has seen the Father. At Heritage, one of our core values is, is designed around a, a high view of Scripture. We have a core value of right doctrine and biblical interpretation, which means that we, we hold God's word in very high regard around here. One of the markers of discipleship that we've identified as a church is, is gospel purity and mature doctrine, meaning that we believe it's centrally important to have the right understanding of the gospel and of, and of Christian doctrine as revealed by Scripture. So we, we, we do things centered around the word. And if you've grown up around the church, no doubt you've grown up with the Bible in your hand and you know the scriptures. This is probably all repeat for a lot of you guys. I know there's different ways that we as Christians refer to the Bible. There's some of the ways we refer to the scriptures that I, I care about or care for. And there's some that, that, that I don't care for too much. You probably heard these little euphemisms or these little phrases for scripture. It's, it's a playbook for life. It's the word. It's God's love letter. It's life's instruction manual. It's a living word. There's some of those that cause me to gag a little bit and some that I like. But you know what, as I interact with even believers in the church, uh, and, and of course those outside of the church, I, I hear a lot of confusion about the Bible as a whole. And I'm not going to be able to address all those confusions today, but I just want to address that I recognize there is some confusion about this book, this written word. Is it, is it just a book of wisdom? Is that what the Bible is? Is this just a, a book, like a guidebook, like the to-dos and the not-to-dos for life? Is that it? Like a, like a manual for how to live? Sometimes people have this view of the Bible that it's like this book of magic filled with incantations that can be wielded for supernatural ends. Where, where verses can be used as sort of magical chants to manifest whichever you want. And then we've got to struggle with authorship. Like, where did this come from? It didn't fall from heaven on golden tablets. And so, who wrote it? How do we arrive at 66 books of the Bible? And if it's inspired, meaning that the Holy Spirit inspired it, if it's Inerrant, meaning it doesn't have error. And if it's authoritative, meaning it's got authority over life and practice, um, how did that even look when God inspired these 40-some human authors to write the Bible? Did he just animate them? Cause their hand to grab a quill and go to some parchment and start writing? Or did he use human faculty and, and experience and human authors that was guided by the Spirit of God and he assembled? And then we ask, you know, can, can the Bible be trusted? I've heard for years that we don't know who wrote it and, and maybe a bunch of rich... Uh, powerful men wrote it as a tool for manipulation over other people. And how do we know that it's not a translation of a translation of a translation and it's been contaminated over the years? Have you heard any of these? Have you heard any of this? I've heard it my whole life. And again, I'm, I can't answer all those today, but there are really profound and applicable and honest and stress-relieving answers for all those questions. I watched a video, we, we shared it previously, a video that Tim Mackey puts on about, about the Bible. And he shares some quotes in there that are just really interesting about the, how the Bible emerged, how the Bible emerged from this, this Christian movement. And, and here's the one quote I want to share with you by a, a guy by the name of Michael Kruger. 
referring to the Bible as the canon. He says, The canon was never authorized or mandated by any general council of ancient churches, but rather rested upon the early and largely informal consensus of the church. In short, the church did not close the canon because it never started it to begin with. The canon was inherited from the apostles. J.I. Packer said, The church no more gives us the New Testament than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. He did not create it. He recognized it. Our passage today says the word of God is living and active. So let's take a few minutes to unpack what it is these two verses say about this word. And again, the marvel in all of this is that God has revealed himself. He has spoken his word. He has spoken in his word and in his son. We are to treasure this word and let it transform our lives. Now, Real quick, by way of a backstory, so we have our, our passage in context. We have been in a warning for multiple verses, 26 verses that began back in chapter 3, verse 7. There are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. This is the second warning. And these warnings have been hard. We've been in this warning for like several weeks, and it's like it makes me uncomfortable. My brother actually listens to my sermons. He lives in Arizona. Hi, Todd. I know you're going to listen to this. And uh, uh, I'm smarter and better looking. And uh, uh, my brother texted me this week. He's like, hey, I listened to your sermon today from last Sunday. He said, it's time uh, we, we get past all the fear and trembling and working out of salvation and move on to some assurance. That's what he said to me. He, he doesn't like the warning passages. But in this, in this warning, what the author has been doing is he's been looking back at that wilderness generation, those Israelites that left Egypt that wandered in the desert and died in rebellion in the desert, and they've been sort of the object lesson for the audience of this letter of who not to be, of how not to act, of how not to live out your faith. This author is writing to a group of, of Jewish Christians who are going through a very difficult time. They're on the verge of giving up. So the author is drawing significantly from the failures of that wilderness generation to encourage his audience to, to hold fast to Jesus, to, to don't give up. If you were with us last week, he's telling them there is a real rest that is available for you, a soul rest. God has created a place of rest for you. And those who listen and respond in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ will find that rest. And then it concludes with the two verses of our text. Now we've said from the very beginning what the author of Hebrews is committed to, among many things, but one of the big ideas that fly over the whole book is that he is dedicated to presenting Jesus as absolutely perfect and absolutely sufficient. In other words, Hebrews is saying that there can be absolute confidence in Jesus Christ. He is the living word. So, let's take a look. I have five things I want to share with you today. If you're a note taker, you can click on our app. There should be some slides on the screen, or you can take digital notes, or just listen. The first one is simply this. God has spoken. It's incredible. God has spoken. Look at the first five words of our passage today. For the word of God. What is the word of God? What is the author referring to here? What exactly is the word of God? Well, it means the totality of God's revelation. God reveals himself in words, written words, the Bible, and living words, Jesus Christ. As I used the phrase last week, last week, inscripturated words, not my phrase, I'm not smart enough to come up with that word, but inscripturated words, the Bible, and the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. The word here is pictured as God's personal utterance. God has spoken. And think of how he's spoken. He opened his mouth and creation came into existence. He spoke through the prophets. He's spoken to us by his son. He speaks, he speaks to us by his written word. And today, you and I, 
landing where we do in salvation history, we come to know Jesus through the written word. Our access to Jesus is through the word. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes, softens our heart, calls us to God. The Holy Spirit gives us understanding of the testimony of Scripture, but we come to know Jesus because of the Scriptures, whether we have read it or we sat under the proclamation of it. And we continue to hear his voice today. Think of what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Speaking of all of Scripture, he said, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completed, may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so let's just recognize, you know, I know some people want to view the Bible as just an ancient holy text, no different than other religious holy texts. This book is wholly different. These aren't the stale, dusty words that one would find in a library or in a museum or in a forgotten uh, chapter of an encyclopedia or an old dictionary. No, these aren't just some of the 40 quadrillion words that humankind has, has spoken and recorded over the course of history. These words in this scriptures are entirely and eternally set apart. These are God-breathed words. And these words point us to God himself. These words that God has spoken and inscripturated for us, they create, they promise, they confront, they convict, they comfort, they expose, they save. God has spoken, it's been preserved for us, and we have access to his word today through the scriptures. If we look back at the warning of, of 3-7, these 26 verses, I went back this week and just looked, and I, I see at least 13 references in those 26 verses of speaking or hearing. As this warning is being spoken over these beleaguered and tired and, and, and heart-sick Christians who are ready just to walk away from the faith, the author is saying, God has spoken. Heed his words today. Listen, listen, listen to what he has said. He said it to them then, and he says it to us today. The author of Hebrews isn't standing on his own authority. He's standing on the authority of God's word. In, in the case of the Israelites, the wilderness generation that we keep referring to, it didn't help them. Because they didn't listen. And they weren't obedient to the word. You remember how the book of Hebrews began? The first two verses? It begins with God speaking. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. If you think about how the Bible itself begins. Genesis chapter 1. It begins with God speaking. Chapter 1 verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God spoke creation into existence. God speaks by his son, and he speaks through his word. There is no mistaking his voice. These are world-creating life, or world-creating, death-defeating, life-giving words. Not just the one of many voices, but the only voice. So God has spoken. Treasure his word. Let it transform your life. Now let's go on to, what, what, is it, what does it now say about it? Okay, so God has spoken. Great. Now, now we get all these unique little descriptors. Uh, of, 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 of what and how the word of God operates. So the second thing I want you to write down is this. God has spoken. And what ought we know about these words he has spoken? Well, they're alive. God has spoken and his words are alive. Look at the next part in verse 12 there. For the word of God is living and active. The living God speaks living words. His words are alive. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we see this phrase, the living God. That Greek word for living there, zao, it means to live, to breathe, to be among the living, 
not lifeless, not dead. Metaphorically, it means to be in full vigor, to be fresh, strong, efficient, active, powerful, efficacious. There are life in the words of God. And when taken together, living and active, this means that when God speaks, things happen. The prophet Isaiah captured this when he was speaking, when God was speaking through him in Isaiah 55. Listen, listen to what, what God says through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so my word that goes forth from my mouth will not return empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Like rain and water cause life to spring forth on the face of the earth, the word of God will not return void, but it will accomplish what God desires for it to accomplish. It is living and it's active. There's a really famous quote that, uh, from, from uh, Martin Luther. Now Martin Luther, the great reformer, as the Reformation was, 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 was exploding, as the Protestant church was exploding across Europe, he, he was asked to explain the Reformation, explain what's taking place here in Europe. Why is this happening? And Luther famously answered, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then I slept. He went on to say, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince and never an emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing, Luther said. The word did it all. I read this week that we're not looking for gospel gimmicks these days. We're not looking for trendy little techniques. We're looking for men and women and churches and seminaries and ministries and denominations who will stand up with the word of God. Teach it, preach it, write it, sing it, counsel it, lift it up, let it out and let it fly and let the word do its work. This word is living and it's active. God has spoken and his words are alive. Treasure this word and let it transform your life. Next, God has spoken and we see his words are penetrating. God has spoken, and we see that his words are penetrating. Look at the next part of verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. The word of God is like a two-edged sword. It goes through, it penetrates, it pierces. The idea being that this piercing that the word of God does it divides the undividable. It plums into the deepest parts of the human soul. It splits that which can't be split, soul and spirit, joint and marrow. The word is not simply described as a sharp sword, but as sharper than the sharpest sword. And it's a, it's a dangerous or it's a, it's a violent poetic metaphor, isn't it? Especially if you imagine living in the first century when the sword was an instrument by which many had fallen. And lost their lives. This is a violent description. Remember, this is a warning passage, and it speaks of judgment here. Two-edged swords were notorious to this original audience. They might even have been thinking of, of Numbers 14 when the wilderness generation uh, uh, decided to, to, without God's protection, without God's permission, decided to go on their own and try to enter the promised land. And the Malachites and the Canaanites killed them by the sword. Or maybe they're just thinking about their context, the Roman emperor empire. The occupation that they were under. The Romans had this famous sword called the gladius by which no doubt many, many, many had lost their, lost their lives, had, had been pierced by. For you and me today, we hear the phrase a double-edged sword and it has kind of a double meaning. It means there's something good and something bad. Well, 
It's a two-edged sword. There's a good part to it and a bad part to it. But, but I think as we, as we check here it, it, what the author's intention here is, it's simply to give us this picture of, of the, the way in which the Word of God pierces to the very core of who we are and nothing is hidden or nothing escapes the piercing nature of the Word of God. It penetrates into the deepest and most hidden places of a person's inner life. It gets to the very core of who we are as people. It touches the places in our life that we don't want anybody to know about. And that can lead to confession and repentance at what the piercing word exposes. Or it can lead to judgment if confession and repentance doesn't happen. That's the warning. And I just think about it over the course of my life. I think about the times in my life, I'm sure you have them if you're a believer, where you're reading the word and a a scripture just jumps out of the pages and slices your heart. And it brings you to your knees and it's the voice of God speaking into your life and it's profound and it just lays bare. I think of my conversion experience when the word of God was preached and my eyes were opened. I think of just so many stories I've heard of, of people, incredible stories of people who, who are curious spiritually, found themselves a Bible, and unbelieving began to read through the pages of Scripture and fell in love with Jesus and went, from death to le- and went from death to life. I've heard of those stories so many times of how the Word of God just leapt off the pages and saved men and women who are far from God. I've heard of stories where people are living and walking in rebellion, and, and whether it be a sermon preached or, or a devotional time in the scriptures, their hearts were pierced by the word of God and they confessed and repented. I've heard of people asking God for direction and trying to figure out what next steps were in a time of confusion or in a difficult season, and the word of God, with its piercing way, just got to the core of the heart intentions and gave clarity about what came next. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Now that's been the subject of of some speculation. There's been men and women throughout church history who have sought to justify uh, uh, an entire doctrine concerning the separation of soul and of of spirit based on this verse, but that's not something that all of Scripture supports. I agree with Kent Hughes, who says about that, he says this, our author here is not concerned to provide a physiological or anatomical analysis of the human condition, but rather to describe in graphic terms the penetration of God's word to the innermost depths of man's personality. And God's word, thank God, pierces the hardest of hearts. There's an incredible story that I stumbled onto this week about a man named Thorpe. Back in the 1700s in England, there was a great evangelist by the name of George Whitfield, probably one of the most famous names in the, in the 18th century. And he was from England, but he, he preached, they say, some people say to as many as 10 million people. Thousands came to faith in Christ through his preaching during the Great Awakening. He was known for being a, an incredible preacher who, who had crossed eyes. And there was a guy named Thorpe who, who was from Bristol, England, who did not care for George Whit- Whitfield. Made fun of him. Actually had a club or a, group, a, a gang, if you will, and they called themselves the Hellfire Club. And they made it their mission in life to make fun of, to undermine, and to attack George Whitfield. And on one particular day, they end up at the local pub, and Thorpe, this, this great critic of, of Whitfield's, they're gathered in this pub, they're all drinking, and so Thorpe uh, was apparently great at doing an impersonation of Whitfield's mannerisms and his gestures, and so he stood up in the center of the bar, he crossed his eyes, and he began to read from one of the published manuscripts of Whitfield's sermons to make fun of him in the bar. The story goes, but in the middle of the sermon, the word of God so pierced his heart And he suddenly stopped and he sat down, trembling and brokenhearted, 
right then and there, he confessed the truth of the gospel. He gave his heart to Christ. His aim was to taunt and ridicule, but he accidentally converted himself. (laughs) Oh, rather, the power of the word of God penetrated his soul and cut him to the heart. Thorpe went on to become a very successful evangelist of his own right. He understood the power of the word of God, that it pierces the hardest of hearts. It pierced his heart in a pub, in an act of mockery. What a blessed wound. The word of God does what no surgeon or no psychologist could ever do. It penetrates into the innermost depths of a person's life. It exposes their thoughts and their personality and their intentions. It pierces the unpierceable. It splits the unsplittable. Like the scalpel of a surgeon, God's word inflicts a cut that brings healing. Glory be to God who has given us this double-edged sword of his word. It cuts deeply that we may die. It cuts again that we may live. I didn't come up with that. I read it this week. God has spoken. His words are alive. His words are penetrating. Treasure this word and let it transform your life. Next we read that God has spoken and his words expose the unseen. God has spoken and his words expose the unseen. Look at the end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. His words expose the unseen. The word of God exposes everything. Nothing is hidden from his living and penetrating word. Nothing. I think of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 33. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all and who considers everything they do. I think of what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness? and will disclose the purposes of the heart. He sees it all. He observes everything. He who formed our hearts considers everything we do, and he will bring to light everything that is hidden. He'll disclose the intentions of our heart. Is that terrifying for you? It's a little terrifying for me. I heard one preacher talk about this recently. He said it's sobering to think about. The metaphorical power of the words here in verse 13 are terrifying. All are naked and exposed, he says. Laid bare. Uncovered. Stark and naked before God. The metaphor here that we don't get through our English translation is to be taken by the throat. Remember, this is a warning passage. Taking a lamb and bending its head back so that its throat can be cut. That's the picture here a wrestler having his head bent back by his opponent, or leading a man to execution with his head bent back and a knife to his neck. The whole idea is simply this. It is, a, it is the completeness of vulnerability. Totally vulnerable. Totally bare. Naked and face-to-face as God's penetrating gaze looks right into your soul, and he knows everything. He cannot be fooled. And if you're not under grace, that is terrifying. 
Now this was written to a group of believers, a group of Christians who had come under the grace of the cross to remind them of the great promise of God's grace to hold fast to Jesus that they wouldn't find themselves without that covering. So church, God has spoken. His words are alive. His words are penetrating. His words expose the unseen. Treasure this word and let it transform your life. Finally, and lastly, we see that God has spoken and we are accountable to God and to his word. God has spoken and we are accountable to God and his words. Let's read the whole passage one last time. For, God, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now the author here, he switches from speaking about the word of God to speaking of God himself. The written word of God is an expression of the living word of God. As Thomas Schreiner says, the seamless shift here confirms the close connection between God and his word so that the latter is an expression of the former. I sat down with Dr. Townsend this week who, who sits in our sermon development process and he, he kind of pulled this from the text. He said, he said, God reveals the extent of his knowledge here and there is no limit to his knowledge. He is an all-knowing, all-powerful judge to whom mankind must give an account. One theologian puts it this way, in response to this truth of that you and I will give an account one day, one, one theologian says this, he says, we may conceal our inner being from our neighbors and we can deceive ourselves, but nothing escapes the scrutiny of God. Before him, everything lies exposed and powerless and it is to him, not our fellow man or our own conscience that our final account must be rendered. Stripped of all disguise and protection, we are utterly at the mercy of God, the judge of all. The Apostle Paul affirms that in Romans 14 when he says each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now God has revealed himself to us. In creation, he's revealed himself to us by his son and through his word. He's done so according to the warning passage that we might not miss out on the rest that he has for us, the, the salvation, the grace, the forgiveness that he has for us. The author is warning the us and he's warning them then and us today to don't turn away from God. When, when this living and active word, when it penetrates into the depths of your inner world, when it exposes the wretchedness of your heart, you know and I know instinctively that we need an advocate in that place. That we'll be without excuse in that place. And if you reject the grace of God as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this text is warning us you will stand alone in judgment before the living God. Remember, this is a warning. So the invitation for you and me is to respond by faith to this God who has spoken. Listen to his words today. Live by these words today. In living by the word, we are drawn to Christ. Nothing is hidden from his sight, which is how we experience transformation. There's no part. If he, if, he, if he divides the undividable, if he exposes the secret inner thoughts of our heart that we don't even understand ourselves, that is the only place where real transformation lies. If we want our heart transformed, only a God who can pierce the hardest heart knows how to transform our heart. Our hope for sanctification, for transformation is found in this truth. So don't let, if you're in Christ, let this be an encouragement to you. Think about that. 
This living and active word that penetrates the most hidden and protected parts of your soul, this living word that that exposes the truth of your inner world, this word that, that strips you naked, that exposes the truth of who you are, it does not cause our God to recoil. He does not pull back. He does not reject you. He does not point in horror and condemn you for all of eternity. No. In fact, we see the opposite. He entered our story. He entered human history. He drew near to us to make a way for grace, to extend forgiveness, to save the sinner. The Apostle Paul captures this marvel in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. Listen to what Paul says about this truth. He said, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, which is all of us. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the act of rebelling and turning our back and stiff-arming him, he still died for us. Did you know that there's not a moment in your life, yesterday, today, or tomorrow, where God's going to watch you in your sin and go, I cannot believe what they just did. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. He's he's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. So this is why, for, for, for me personally and for us as a church, this is why preaching the Word of God is so vital. Because this is the power that the Word of God has. It's living and it's active and, and, and it penetrates the deepest parts of our soul. It exposes the unseen. It reveals to, which, to what we are held accountable. This is the living Word of God. This is why we have such a high view of Scripture. Without the Word, we create a Jesus of our own making of our own imaginations, a hodgepodge religion made up of the things we want. We don't want to follow a made-up paper God. I'm telling you, we don't. Albert Moeller, he said, our dependence on the Word of God is as total as our dependence on the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ himself. The Word has been revealed to us. And the Word is revealing of us. God has revealed himself to us, and by that revelation, he He reveals us to him. It lays us bare before him. And so when we pick up the scriptures, as Pastor Jeremy said this week as we were studying this passage, there is a need for precision. We ought not play with the scriptures loose and fast. God's word has been used, and I don't need to enumerate the countless examples. God's word has been used throughout human history and no doubt at some point in some of your lives as a tool of oppression. Misapplied, perverted, misquoted, to be used as a tool of abuse and manipulation and victimization. It's heartbreaking. That's why we don't play loose and fast with the word. That's why we have to handle the word with precision. If you're handling a two-edged sword, it is a dangerous weapon. It must be handled with care. Now, I, I know we talked about this last week, and I'm not a big fan of making a plug in the middle of a sermon. I think sermons are for the exposition of God's word, but I I, I have to invite you again, church. We have an opportunity coming up on February 3rd and 4th where we we are providing tools for the men and women of our church to handle the word of God with precision. We're providing tools to help the men and women of our church learn how to read and interpret and understand the scriptures so that they know how to handle it rightly, can share it with others. We're calling this Tools for Reading Your Bible. It's led by a dear, dear friend of mine from, from, from the East Coast. 
He's a brilliant, godly man I served in ministry with for many years. He works for an organization called the Charles Simeon Trust. It's an organization that is solely dedicated on the right handling of God's word. He's going to be here with us in like three weeks. Anybody can come to this. It's just, it'll be a Friday night and a Saturday. It'll give you tools to know how to rightly handle the word of God. Would you please consider making that a priority? It's a way in which we really want to continue to equip our body toward that core value of right doctrine and biblical interpretation. We think this is so important, so consider that. Here's the amazing thing. God hasn't revealed us, God rather, God hasn't released us to figure out life with with ambiguity, with, with some unclear expectation. He's made it abundantly clear. He's spoken his word to us. He's revealed himself to us. God has spoken to us. His words are active and penetrating, his words expose the unseen. We're accountable to God and his words. Church, let's treasure this word. Let's let it transform our lives. And before I go, I want to just consider what this means. Let's, let's think a little b- more broadly here for a minute. Okay, let's consider again what it means that God has spoken. I know, you know, it's funny. It, it's, you know, in America, we, we have probably 10 of these in our homes. You probably have 10 Bibles on bookshelves in your homes. And, and it's easy for us to sometimes sort of treat it casually, this word. And I know you maybe have seen the video. I just saw again for, for like the 30th time this video of these underground Chinese Christians who received written copies of the Bible in their own language for the first time. You've probably seen this video. It's a famous video. And these people weeping as the word of God is handed to them, like this treasure of God's word. It is a treasure that God has given us his word. And as I was thinking about the story of humankind, I, I found myself speaking, thinking about the beginning, thinking about the garden, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I think about God speaking and creation coming to be. I think about God speaking and forming Adam and Eve. I think about what God spoke to Adam in Genesis 2, commanding Adam. He said to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we know the tragic story of tragic rebellion. We know that Adam and Eve thought they could be like God. They turned their back on God. They disobeyed God. They disobeyed his words, and they ate, and suddenly they were naked. Genesis 3, verse 11 and 12, God says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This reminded me, this picture of Adam and Eve suddenly aware of their sinfulness and their shame, that they had rebelled and turned their back against the words of God, hiding, shivering under fig leaves in shame, naked and exposed. It reminded me of our text today. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I mean, do you see Adam? Do you see Eve in the garden that day? Naked and exposed, aware of their shame and their sin and their rebellion. And us too. If we allow the word of God to do what it, it, we read that it does here. Like Adam and Eve, we, we, we stand today also before God naked and exposed. The word of God exposes what we try to hide. In light of God's word, all is exposed and we are also aware of our sin. What did God do in the garden that day? Well, God made garments of animal skins, number one, to cover Adam and Eve. And he made a promise that the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent that brought apart this death and this lie. So it stands to reason if God made skins to cover Adam and Eve that there was an animal sacrificed in the garden, 
And this, this covering of their sin in a micro sense pointed to a greater covering, a future covering in a macro sense that Christ would bring. The future offspring of Eve would come and crush the head of Satan, Jesus Christ himself. The author of Hebrews tells us this is why Jesus came, Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Through his death on the cross, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ came to defeat death, to defeat sin. Through a greater sacrifice, through the death on the cross, God has made covering for our sins Christ has taken our sin and our shame upon himself and he has given us his righteousness. It's an incredible exchange. Christ has defeated death. The writer, the writer of Hebrews calls this good news. We no longer have to, have to fear death because Christ died in our place, praise God. For those who, who trust in the work of Christ, God has prepared a rest, an eternal rest, a hopeful rest. There is grace for those who have placed their faith, their hope, and their trust in Jesus, the Scriptures tells us heaven await. The consummated kingdom of God awaits all who are found in Christ. And so the truth is, when we, when we first come to him, and the word of God does what the word of God does, it exposes us, and we're naked and exposed. But God hasn't left us to fend for ourselves. Just like God sacrificed an animal to make garments of skin, Christ sacrificed, allowed himself to be sacrificed so that we could have a greater covering. And when we couple, according to Hebrews, when we couple the hearing of the good news with faith in Jesus Christ, he provides for us forgiveness. We are forever covered by his grace, no longer naked, no longer exposed, no longer ashamed, but forgiven, redeemed, and righteous. Church, God has revealed himself. He has spoken in his word. He has spoken in his son. Treasure this word and let it transform your lives. Pray with me. Father, grateful for this text. And God, grateful for the, just the incredible truth that you have revealed yourself to us. You have spoken to us by your son, the incarnate word. You have spoken to us by your word, the inscripturated word. God, you've given us your words. You have spoken that we might treasure this word, that we might allow this word to have full access into our lives, that we might be transformed and shaped and molded into the image of your son. And so God, I pray for our church. God, I pray as we consider the truths contained in this text today, God, that you would, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive the truth of your word. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.